potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another truly fascinating guest today uh, who is helping to create a better tomorrow for so many people out there. Uh, today we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Catherine High, uh, who is President of Therapeutics at Asclepius Biopharmaceutical, where she is also a member of their board of directors and has responsibility for driving uh, the strategic direction and execution of the preclinical and clinical programs of the company, uh, which happens to be a, uh, a wholly owned and independently operated subsidiary of Bayer. It was set up as a fully integrated gene therapy company dedicated to developing life-saving medicines to cure genetic diseases. Most recently, Dr. High was a visiting professor at Rockefeller University. And previous to that, she was the president, head of research and development, and a member of the board of directors at Spark Therapeutics. Uh, here in Philly, which is now part of Roche, uh, where she directed uh, their development and regulatory approval of Lipsterna, a gene therapy for the, the treatment of the ophthalmic uh, condition Lieber congenital amaurosis, and represents the first gene therapy uh, that was uh, obtained regulatory approval in both the U.S. and the EU. Uh, Dr. High is a longtime member of the faculty at University of Pennsylvania and medical staff at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, where she was also an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. She served five terms on the U.S. Uh, FDA's Advisory Committee on Cell Tissue and Gene Therapies and is a past president of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy. Uh, Dr. High received her bachelor's degree in chemistry from Harvard, her medical degree from University of North Carolina School of Medicine, did a hematology fellowship at Yale, uh, his business degrees uh, from University of North Carolina Business School, as well as a master's degree from Penn, uh, elected member of National Academy of Medicine, American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the, the faculty of the pharmaceutical medicine of the, uh, of the Royal College of Physicians in London, and, and quite recently was awarded uh, the gold medal at Children's Hospital Philadelphia here, uh, only, only been given 12 times in the last 167 years. Uh, we're honored to have her with us today. Uh, Dr. Kathleen High, uh, thank you for taking time out of your chance to come talk to us. Well, Ira, I'm happy to be here. No, it, it's it's great to have you. Um, I, I would love to you know start off because you know I I dove into uh, you know your extensive uh, you know literature um, in the peer review domain and was sort of going back to the 1980s where you first start publishing on uh, hematology on coagulation disorders the molecular biology of hemophilia. Talk a little bit, if you would, about those early days. What got you interested in this particular domain? And then, you know, simultaneously, you're also publishing about uh, gene therapy concepts very early on when gene therapy really wasn't a thing yet, uh, studying uh, concepts in, in canines and so forth. Talk a little bit about the early days, if you would. Well, let me just say that uh, as an undergraduate, I was a chemistry major. And I struggled over whether to go into graduate work in chemistry or into medicine, but I finally decided I would go to medical school. But then when it was time to choose a subspecialty, I, I wanted to do something where my chemistry background could be useful. And to me, that was hematology. So as you mentioned, I trained in hematology at Yale, and I took my first faculty job at UNC Chapel Hill. And at that point, the genes for factor eight and factor nine, which are respectively the uh, the underlying causes for hemophilia A and hemophilia B had just been cloned. And the other very important event that was taking place at that same time was that uh, HIV was beginning to infect the hemophilia population. 
through the older plasma-derived concentrates of factor eight and factor nine. And so just as I was beginning my career, setting up my research lab and starting to look at mutations that caused hemophilia and study how those affected the structure and function of clotting factor molecules, I was also in my clinical work beginning to see more and more patients who really, hemophilia patients who had developed full-blown AIDS. Mm -hmm. And in those early days, of course, we could diagnose it, but we had no antiretroviral drugs. And uh, so that began to be a fairly daunting uh, area in which to practice medicine. And I began to think then about, wouldn't it be great if we could somehow just give all these people a normal copy of the factor A gene or factor IX gene, and then they would never have to worry about contaminants in the blood supply. Because even earlier, we had realized that many of these people had some other problem that was manifested in mild elevations in their liver function tests, in which we eventually identified in medicine as hepatitis C. But in those days, we just called it non-A, non-B. We didn't, we didn't, uh, hepatitis C was not a defined entity yet. Mm -hmm. At any rate, so uh, it was really in the midst of seeing so many people with hemophilia be affected with first HIV positivity, which nobody really knew what that meant at the beginning, but then eventually progressing to full-blown AIDS. And of course, as you know, many people in the severe hemophilia population died uh, before there were good antiretroviral drugs. And so really, it was, it was contact with patients who were affected in that way that began to pique my interest in, could we actually do gene therapy for this and other genetic diseases? And so it was in the it was in the context of that that we set about to clone the normal factor non gene the normal canine factor non gene in the hemophilia dog models mm -hmm. at Chapel Hill, and then define the defect in the factor non gene of those hemophilia dogs, and then try to start thinking about how to do gene transfer. So we we published the paper about. <laughs> the mutation in the dogs and the normal sequence uh, in 1989. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1992, I received a very attractive offer from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that was going to let me devote more of my time to doing research. And gene therapy had already become a very competitive area. And so I welcomed the opportunity to uh, take a job where my clinical commitments would be somewhat more structured and limited. Um, and I moved to Philadelphia. Uh, and I will add that one set of my grandparents had grown up here in Philadelphia. My maternal grandfather graduated from the Penn Chemical Engineering Program. Excellent. <laughs> uh, so anyway... Um, so he was very happy that I decided to take this job. Um, and by 1997, we had shown that we could use an AAV vector introduced into the skeletal muscle of, of hemophilic mice. Uh, okay, this is, we started with mice. And uh, we could get durable expression of the donated gene that would uh, reverse hemophilia in the mice. So we, we thought that was very exciting. And so we set about trying to find enough vector, the same gene delivery vehicle, where the, the word for that is vector. Mm -hmm. So the same gene delivery vehicle, uh, AAV, carrying the canine factor non gene. And in those days, the late 1990s, it was actually, you know, beyond the scope of most academic labs to make enough material for us to treat a 20 kilogram dog. So I started to work with a biotech company in Northern California, uh, a company called Avigen. 
And they had actually put a great deal of resources into uh, improving yields in manufacturing, streamlining the process, improving the yields, and so forth. And um, I, I looked at several different companies, but I was most impressed with, with their scientists and with the work they had done in manufacturing. So we set up a collaboration and uh, we, we treated hemophilic dogs. They made the vector. We did these experiments in hemophilic dogs. And again, the data looked uh, very strong. We did two different routes of administration. First, just... Uh, intramuscular injections, so directly into the skeletal muscle. And then the muscle formed a depot, uh, you know, to secrete factor nine, or into the liver. So the liver, the levels from the liver were actually better. But when we got ready to do the first clinical trial, we, uh, at that point, nobody had introduced AAV into skeletal muscle or into liver. <laughs> People had used AAV in the respiratory tract mm -hmm. of uh, adults with cystic fibrosis. So there was some experience using it, but not what we call in medicine parenteral injection. So it, so if if something goes into your lungs and it irritates you, you can cough it out. <laughs> right. But if somebody injects it into your muscle, you can't really get rid of it. Um, so, and the same for your liver, of course. So uh, we went back and forth about the best way to start, but we decided to do our first clinical trial by injecting skeletal muscle. And we specifically selected um, a muscle in the front of the thigh. Your quadriceps is named that because it has four bellies. Mm -hmm. But one of those bellies of the quadriceps, the vastus lateralis, um, even if you lose that muscle, you will still have a stable knee and a functional quadriceps because it's a relatively small part of the four bellies of the quadriceps. So uh, we, we decided that we would inject that muscle and then if something terrible went wrong, we could always excise that muscle if we had to. And, you know, presumably that would lessen any risk. So we got permission from the uh, Institutional Review Board at the Children's Hospital to conduct that study. And um, we carried it out. There were, uh, I think, eight brave men with hemophilia B who agreed to have these injections. And I had a wonderful uh, clinical investigator at the Children's Hospital, Dr. Catherine Mano. She's the chairman of pediatrics at NYU now. So, so uh, that study, you know, we, all of these people agreed to have, um, to have a muscle biopsy a year after the treatment. And we were able to show by special stains on the muscle biopsy that it was actually making factor nine, mm -hmm. but the circulating levels that we were getting were not high enough to really affect the disease. Um, and we later learned that a lot of the factor nine was sticking in the interstices around the muscle fibers. Okay. It actually has a, a property to uh, bind very tightly to uh, to collagen, which is abundant in the material that surrounds every muscle fiber. And so most of the factor nine was not getting out into circulation. It was sticking inside the muscle. And we had already gotten up to a fairly substantial number of injections, uh, you know, close to 100 mm. different muscle injections. Um, and we still were not getting good circulating, circulating levels, but all the safety data were good. And we were clearly expressing factor nine. We could see it on the muscle biopsies. So given those data, we applied to the regulators to introduce the vector into the liver because all of our work in the hemophilic dog suggested that you get much more um, robust secretion 
of factor nine made in the liver directly into the circulation, which is where you need it. Right. So, so, uh, so we started that trial in 2001. And uh, it was, again, was the first trial in which anybody had tried to put AAV into the liver. And I have to say that many of our experiences in that illustrated that old saying, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. <laughs> so we were definitely uh, having a first mouse experience uh, as we went through that work. Um, and we encountered a number of obstacles that had not been uh, accurately predicted by studies in animals. And I think, you know, uh, when you're working with a new class of therapeutics, and remember, there was very, very little experience with AAV and none of giving it into the circulation to get to the liver. Um, it's probably not surprising, uh, but still, this greatly slowed down our work because every time we uncovered a problem that had not been um, that had not been predicted in animal studies, we would have to drop back and you know sort of try to develop a new animal model to model it and learn more about it and pro provide all those data to the FDA before we could keep moving. So <laughs> what the sum of what we learned in that first trial, which went from 2001 to 2004, mm -hmm. um, we solved some problems that are now you know, well understood in the field. Uh, and uh, mostly people reference the work that we did around that. So one of the first of those was the risk that the vector would show up in the semen. Hmm. And again, that was not well predicted by the hemophilia dog model. Um, but in the first uh, people who were injected with the vector, uh, the vector did show up in the semen. And what is the risk of that? Well, the risk of it is that uh, suppose it's in the spermatocyte, and suppose that fertilizes an egg, what exactly would that do? And, you know, sometimes people would say, but wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't it guarantee that the uh, affected, uh, that the offspring would not carry a gene for hemophilia? But, you know, we can't, we can't say that, right? Because, because fetal development is an incredibly complex series right. of genes turning on, genes turning off. And if, if this additional gene went in somewhere that nobody had predicted or or that we didn't understand the context of right of, of exactly where it would might land would it somehow interrupt the program of fetal development and so you know we, we all regulators wish to avoid <laughs> new genes going into uh reproductive cells so what we learned over time in another, in a rabbit model, actually, was that over time, the semen always clears. It's a dose-dependent clearance. So the lower the dose you give, the faster it clears. The higher the dose of vector you give, the more slowly it clears, but it always clears. So we amended our protocol to ask people to use barrier birth control until the semen was repeatedly negative. And then we were allowed to go forward. So that was just an example of the kinds of things that we were uncovering that had not been well predicted by animal models. Mm -hmm. The, I think the, the key learning from that first trial was that we, we, we did this in a dose escalation fashion. Uh, the low dose was too low. The second dose was too low. But at the third do dose, which was the one predicted by the dog model to be the therapeutic dose, we saw expression in a clearly therapeutic range. So the patient got the vector, and then by two weeks later, he had very good circulating levels of factor nine. And this particular patient was actually a physician. And he remembers that one day in the pediatrics clinic where he worked it had been a particularly busy day and he was uh, trying to make an infusion for a child who who needed an immediate infusion and 
he turned around and slammed his hand on a cabinet. And because he had severe hemophilia, normally for him, that would mean he needed to stop everything he was doing and take an infusion of clotting factor concentrate, mm. or else he was going to get a gigantic hematoma on his hand. But what happened was before he could do that, the nurse came to him and said, you have to go look at this child in room three right away because the child is really, really ill. They're, they're having an asthma attack or mm -hmm. something like that. And he said the whole afternoon went on like that, and he never had a chance to treat himself. And at the end of the day, he looked down, and he didn't bleed. Mm. And so he said, you know, he knew he knew that it was working, and it was a, uh, you know, it was a great experience. And then uh, what happened was he had a good level for about four to five weeks, and then it began to slowly, slowly, slowly fall down. And by 12 weeks, it had all disappeared. Mm. And again, we had never seen that in animals. And so we weren't sure what it was, but the timing suggested that, so, so it didn't happen right away. He, he seemed fine for four to five weeks. So that kind of timing uh, is at least consistent with an immune response. Right something in the vector, All right? So it takes a little while to get going, but then it, it, when it gets revved up, it takes care of everything it can find. So we looked for other causes of uh, what might be going on. We looked to see if he had some new uh, hepatitis infection, but he did not. We looked to see if he had some other viral infection that might be affecting his liver. It, it, he did not. And so then we started to look to see, did he have an immune response to some component of our vector? So our vector basically is, it looks like a virus on the outside. This is adeno-associated virus. Mm -hmm. Looks like a virus on the outside. And on the inside, instead of the virus DNA, it has the factor IX DNA. So we thought, okay, well, it's a pretty simple structure. And if he's having an immune response, it should be either to the capsid or it could be to normal factor non. If he doesn't have normal factor non, it could look like foreign protein to him. So we set about doing experiments to figure that out. And it looked like he was having an immune response to the capsid. So the AAV looking part of the virus. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, when we saw that, we thought, okay, but that's good news because if he were having an immune response to factor nine, that would be very hard for, you know, that would, sure. I mean, that strikes at the heart of our therapy and then we can't really do anything. Right. Um, but if it's just to the capsid, the capsid is there transiently. And then the cell breaks it down and clears it. So we thought, okay, well, if we can just suppress the patient's immune response for X number of weeks, until his cells break down the capsid into a, a bunch of, you know, small peptides and then clear it, then could we get durable expression? So, uh, you know, we started working along those lines. But the other thing that we realized from our findings was this was clearly dose dependent. Mm -hmm. So if there was a way to reduce the dose, then, you know, could we avoid the immune response altogether? So what we did, uh, to make a long story short, eventually, one of my colleagues at Children's Hospital was working with a group in Italy who had identified a patient who was in his early 20s who presented with blood clots at a young age. So th this is unusual to, to be in your early 20s and develop a deep venous thrombosis mm -hmm. in the leg, which is what this person did. So they worked the patient up and the only thing that they could find that was abnormal was that, so we all have a factor nine level of around 100%. And somebody with severe hemophilia has less than 1%. This patient had 776%. So he had a very, very high level of factor nine. So they cloned his factor nine gene and they found a single point mutation. But that point mutation made his factor nine about eightfold more active than normal factor nine. So they did many other biochemical studies of this, but 
in the end, you know, it seemed that it would be a good idea to use this as the transgene rather than wild type factor non, uh, normal factor non. So we put that construct together in 2015. A lot of that work was done by uh, a great, uh, a great trainee in our group, Dr. Chavi Angela. He works with us at ASPO now. Anyway, so he put that construct together with a different capsid that has a high level of tropism for the liver, and then we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what would be the starting dose in the new trial, because this should work at a lower dose, right? So because of the very high specific activity of the gene that we're put, we were putting in. So we finally picked out a dose that was fourfold lower than the one that had worked in the first trial. And it worked great. It gave, it gave levels of clotting factor that were about threefold higher than the high dose in the first trial. So then people had an average of around 30%, which is great, right? It's, it's not very far. The lower limit of normal is 50%, right? 50% is normal. So these people had 30%, and you know, most people just don't bleed at that level. Now, you know, they probably couldn't play football or be a boxer, but they could conduct most activities of daily living uneventfully without needing any clotting factor. So we did uh, a phase one study of that. Uh, now, this by this time we were at Spark. We did a phase one study. We published those results in 2017, and then uh, Pfizer took that program to do the phase three study. So now they've they their phase three study is now fully enrolled, and they expect to report out results early next year. So um, that was uh, an odyssey. It was a long odyssey from great results in a mouse. Mm -hmm. It was actually fairly quick to get great results in um, in a, a hemophilic dog. Sure. But then to get great results in people took a little longer. <laughs> So it still goes by the drug development, but no, no, it's a, it's, it's a fascinating odyssey. And, 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 you know, as I'm sitting here sort of going on this journey with you, you know, you're, you're developing the vectors, you're studying uh, the immune response control, you're exploring areas of clinical development that no one's touched before. What's happening on the other side at this point? Because clearly as you're doing all this, you're raising money from investors. You're getting big pharma, which you know at this point in the in the early two thousands, right? It's still mainly small molecules, it's monoclonals, right. again, and so forth. Right. What were those experiences like? Because here you are, you're you're a, a clinician, you're a researcher, and now you got to put on this other hat and go convince Pfizer and Roche and, and all these other folks over here that don't usually sell these types of things. This is the future. Talk about a little bit of that. What's happened? Yeah. Well, you know, interestingly, my initial experiences around that were with this uh, company in Northern California, Avigen, mm -hmm. and uh, they were the ones who really introduced me to concepts of, uh, you know, talking to the investors, uh, news flow, mm -hmm. um, uh, and you know how how. Uh, news flow in a biotech company relates to raising money. Yeah. And uh, and I also got a fair amount of experience talking to investors, which is uh, which is an interesting exercise. And I always think that actually training in medicine in some ways is good preparation for that <laughs> because you know when when you go in to talk to a family uh, about, about a person's illness or to the person. You have to gauge pretty rapidly how much they can understand. Sure. And then explain it to them in terms that they can understand. Yeah. And and similarly, you know, I, I found that with investors, I mean some of them are very, very sophisticated. Uh, they're they're physicians and scientists themselves. 
And others are people who are investing in everything from, you know, airplane manufacturing to, you know, medicine, right? So, so they have a very wide range of, of grasp of, of what we were doing. But anyway, that was my initial introduction to it. And I have to say, um, I think a long-term characteristic for me has been that when I get focused on something, I tend to be very, very focused on it to the, to the, uh, exclusion of other things that are going on around me. And so I have to admit that when high-profile adverse events began to occur in other gene therapy trials, I really was not focused on those because they weren't happening in our trials. And so I thought, okay, well, that's not relevant to me. But <laughs> I, I think what I failed to appreciate was that those high-profile adverse events were, were slowly eroding the confidence of many stakeholders whether they be patients, whether they be large pharma, whether they be uh, big biotech or other types of investors, right? People gradually began to lose confidence. And I was really sort of um, not very aware of all that until this company that had been making our clinical grade vector uh, found that they could no longer really raise money. Mm work in gene therapy and that they had to reinvent themselves as a different kind of company if they were going to stay in business. And so uh, that really was a dilemma for all of our work. And, and we felt it was going quite well. I mean, we did, it wasn't a product yet, but it was moving. We were solving problems. We thought that we had a path forward and so on, but not without clinical grade material. And so eventually I had to go to the CEO of Children's Hospital, which at that time was Dr. Stephen Altschuler, who was a pediatrician himself, mm -hmm. and, uh, and ask him if he could help us set up clinical grade manufacturing in the hospital. And, and in those days, you know, all of the news about gene therapy was bad. Yeah. This was in 2004. And, and I thought to myself, He's not going to say yes. <laughs> um, and, and but I thought, but I have to ask him. I have to start somewhere. I have to ask him. And so I went in to talk to him, and and he said he was noncommittal. He said, "Well, let me think about it. Come back and talk to me in a week." And I and already walking out of his office, I was trying to think, okay, what's Plan B here? How else can I solve this difficulty? And so I went back to see him in a week, and to my undying surprise, he said, well, Dr. Howe, you always tell me that there are no problems here that can't be solved. And if gene therapy eventually becomes a product, it will be very important for a children's hospital because genetic disease accounts for a very large percentage of admissions to a children's hospital. Just think about it, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease. I mean, these, these are all single gene disorders. Yep. And uh, so he said, I am going to find space for you. I'm going to find resources so that you can set up clinical grade manufacturing here. He said, I only have one request. You can't spend all the money on hemophilia. You have to work on some other diseases that affect the pediatric population. So I said, okay, that's no problem. Because while I had been working with the company in Northern California, I had tried to get them to move forward a program that I knew about in the Penn Department of Ophthalmology for an ultra rare form of blindness because my colleague, Jean Bennett, had fantastic data in a dog model of that disease. And, you know, I was sure that it was going to work, but I could not convince them to work on it because it was not a commercially exciting target due to the small size of the disease population. So uh, anyway, I thought, well, I don't have to worry about that. I'm doing this work at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. It's a disease that affects the pediatric population we're going to work on it. I think it could succeed. Um, and so I went and asked Jean Bennett if she would be willing to work on this trial with us uh, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And she said yes. And so in 2005, we started working together to put together a trial. And that trial began in 2007. 
<laughs> and uh, you know, it took uh, it took two years to do a trial where we injected one of the two eyes. We gave gradually increasing doses to each group of patients, and then we identified the dose that we would like to take forward. Uh, but the regulators asked us to please do a second phase one trial where we gave that dose to the other eye, to each of these people who had been in the phase one study, so that they could be sure it was safe to give it in both eyes. Anyway, let me backtrack to 2004 before I talk to you more about uh, what became Luxterna. Sure. But, uh, you know, the other issue in 2004 was that we had to find people to staff this vector production facility. So I did go first to the people I'd been working with at the company in Northern California and asked them if they would like to move from San Francisco to Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, you know, again, lucky for me, some of the best people in that group decided that they would do that. They would leave uh, industry and come work at the children's hospital, establish this manufacturing facility and do gene therapy drug development at an academic medical center instead of at a company. And so the person who ran the vector production facility, Dr. Fraser Wright, had come from manufacturing at Avigen, and the person who, who did process development, and that's really sort of every new capsid that we use, somebody has to pilot out exactly how that will manufacture how are we going to purify it? <clears throat> um, you know, upstream and downstream manufacturing, that's called. Um, and we were also fortunate to recruit a really good person in regulatory from the company. And so all those people came and worked with us at Children's Hospital. So um, <clears throat> in some ways, it was better than working with the company because now we were all in one place sure. uh, in the same time zone. So that was working out well. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we, as I said, we put together these trials both in hemophilia and uh, for this rare blinding condition. And the great thing about the uh, ophthalmology indication, you're using very small doses and they're being injected into the back of the eye, into the subretinal space, um, which is a relatively, it's a, it's called a relatively immunoprivileged space. So mm -hmm. it's, it's blocked from, um, it's, it's at least partially blocked from the activities of the immune system. Mm -hmm. And so we did not have those problems with the immune response that we had seen in the liver. Uh, and that work through those two phase one trials went pretty well. And in 2012, we were ready to start the pivotal or phase three study. And about that time, I started to get cold calls in my office of uh, people who were interested in investing in what we were doing. And, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> You know, I was a scientist, I was a physician, I was a researcher. Um, but, you know, I had good funding. Uh, as you mentioned, I was uh, an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And, uh, you know, there, so, you know, and these people would call and I would think, well, I don't, I, I can't, I don't have time to talk to these people. I'm not, <laughs> we're not a business. And, you know, but eventually, Dr. Altruller called me in again in, uh, about the time we started the phase three trial, and he said to me, uh, uh, Dr. Howe, what exactly is your plan here? Because if the phase three trial succeeds <laughs> and somebody needs to market the product, you know, we're a hospital, we don't market products. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, we started to, so uh, Dr. Altschler actually appointed a subcommittee of the CHOP board to sort through some of the different options um, you know, could we partner with uh, a large biotech company or a large pharma company? And, and actually, a couple of them had come and asked to do diligence and had presented the hospital with term sheets. Um, 
But I was really concerned about putting a gene therapy asset into a company that was not really exclusively devoted to gene therapy. And of course, at that point, there were none of those. Right. Uh, just because I was afraid that we might encounter other problems that you know we we didn't know about yet, uh, and that you know to put additional resources into solving a problem like that might be unappealing for um, a company that had many other class, you know, many other classes of therapeutics, all of which didn't need extra help, you know, that, that, that were, much more, were much more well-established and well-understood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my own feeling was, if we're going to do this, we should spin out a company and it should be exclusively devoted to gene therapy because we have to solve the problems. We don't have any other option. For going forward, so that was that was what I wanted to do, and eventually, uh, I think everyone else came to that same point of view, and so the hospital was really helpful. I mean, they engaged a uh, engaged a consulting group to think through if we did that, what would the business look like? What would we take to the business? What would we leave at CHOP? Um, and then uh, eventually those people helped us develop a business plan. And really from that, uh, Spark was formed. And uh, our first investor was the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. They were the Series A investor. Um, and then uh, you know, fortunately, all this was happening at a time when people, investors, were quite excited about gene therapy. And, um, you know, it was, uh, we were fortunate to be able to, over the years, raise a good deal of money, uh, partly through, uh, you know, the company went public. So through stock offerings, but also through other business arrangements, like as I said, you know, the the hemophilia B program went to Pfizer, and mm -hmm. we outlicensed uh, the rights to market uh, the eye product outside the U.S. All the ex-U.S. marketing was done by Novartis, and so you know, through various other maneuvers, we raised uh, additional funding. So uh, you know, the company grew rapidly, and uh, as you know, it was eventually acquired by Roche in late 2019. It had been originally formed uh, from our unit at the Children's Hospital in 2013. And, uh, you know, Spark did, I mean, CHOP did very well out of Spark <laughs> in exchange for their initial investment. I think, uh, I, I think that all these things have been reported in the newspaper. But I think that uh, from their original $50 million investment, they uh, they eventually realized $750 million. So now they put additional money in, in those 10 years that preceded the formation of the company into our unit at CHOP. So, but still, they did pretty well. <laughs> no doubt. And, and I, I enjoy I enjoy going by the building over there on Market Street, uh, major bio hub corridor of, of Philadelphia. So it's, uh, yes. I, I, I enjoy seeing the building when, when I, oh, when you I know, it's, really, it's really funny, Ara, when we were first, you know, so one, so I think employee number one was actually Jeff Morazzo, the CEO. Okay. And uh, he and I had put together a pitch deck and we were going around talking to different people at the beginning Um you know, partly to raise money, but also just to get practice talking mm -hmm. to investors about what we were doing. How did they react? You know, what are they, what are they worried about? You know, this kind of thing. And um, in, in one of these uh, meetings, an investor said to us, well, if you're going to have a biotech company, you have to be in Boston, <laughs> San Diego, San Francisco. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, but we're not doing that. 
because we knew that we were going to take a number of people out of the unit at Children's Hospital, and we we weren't going to move. But, you know, people were very skeptical about our setting up a company in Philadelphia. How dare they? Yeah. I mean, so, but of course, in the end, as Luxterma advanced, it turned out to be a very good thing because... Mm -hmm. This city is ringed by large pharmaceutical companies. Yes, we are. Pfizer, GSK, Merck, Bristol Myers Squibb is in Princeton. You know, J&J has sites in New Jersey. And so as the company advances and you need to access more and more people who have skill sets that transfer pretty easily, new product planning, business development, you know, commercial you know, I mean, we had a great, uh, a great area to draw from, whereas Boston is much more sort of startups. And we even knew of one biotech company that after they became commercial, they opened an office here in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. so that they could recruit the kinds of people they needed to commercialize their products. So anyway, I, I think it turned out to be a great place to, and then, you know, I mean, in in the Cambridge biotech hotbed, you know, the, the turnover rate in all these companies is 20%, right? Because, you know, I mean, there's so many companies, right. it's impossible to hold on to personnel. Whereas, uh, you know, this, this is not true in Philadelphia. Yeah. Well, it didn't, it wasn't when we started in Spark, anyway. Yeah, what, um, you know, looking now at, I mean, that was an awesome experience. And now here we are at Ask Bio, um, doing it sort of again, but at a much larger scale. You have a very broad purview here in terms, uh, you have the, the rare diseases, uh, Pompeys, Huntington's, uh, limb girdle, muscular dystrophy, mm-hmm. some, some non-rare things, congestive uh, heart failure, Parkinson's, uh, a lot of CNS focus here. Um, I was very interested. You wrote a paper um, in 2009 during when you're doing all the other stuff uh, in <laughs> nature medicine entitled Gateway to the Diseased Brain. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, you talk about the blood brain barrier and it, you, you were focusing on lysosomal storage disorders in this paper. Yeah. But, um, you know, you've taken us now into the blood, the muscle, the liver, and the eyeball. Obviously, the brain is. <laughs> I'm not saying those aren't hard, but this is a tough one. Talk a little bit about some of your learnings from this paper and how you're applying them uh, at AskBio. Well, that uh, paper was uh, really a commentary on work that had been done by Bev Davidson, who succeeded me as head of the unit at CHOP that works to establish cell and gene therapies for the pediatric population. Uh, the Center for Cellular and Molecular Therapeutics. And she's had a longstanding interest in gene therapy for diseases that affect the brain. And so she had developed a strategy uh, to identify peptides that you could add to a certain site at an AV vector mm-hmm. that would that would allow those capsids to really go into the endothelium in the brain. So they would allow the capsid to bond specifically to the endothelium, the blood vessels in the brain. Because the blood vessels, so sometimes people think your blood vessels are sort of the same all over the body. That's not true. And the blood vessels in the brain are different from the blood vessels in the, in the muscle. So she had identified this strategy for developing capsids that would specifically uh, go to the brain. Now, you know, that early work was in mice. But I would say similar strategies have been used in the last couple of years to develop capsids that cross the blood-brain barrier readily in non-human primates. Um, I don't, I think most of them are not in people yet. Uh, but I think those a lot of those capsids are really going to be game changers because, and now to sort of bring things all the way to full circle, they're so much more potent than the naturally occurring capsids, which was you know which were the ones that we used initially. Um, 
that you can drop the dose. And when you can drop the dose, you reduce the number of immune responses. You Nearly every side effect of gene therapy is dose-dependent. So if you have a more potent capsid, you can give less of it and still get the same effect, then you know, you'll have fewer side effects. Still get the same therapeutic effect, but you'll have fewer side effects because you dropped the dose. So, uh, I mean, one of the reasons that, I'll tell you several reasons that I was attracted to AskBio. Um, one is that they'd really put a lot of resources into manufacturing, into innovating manufacturing, working on better yields, working on a more consistent process. And they had developed their own 350,000 square foot manufacturing facility in a place called San Sebastian, Spain. So I thought that was a very attractive feature. Um, I was interested in their portfolio. As you said, they had already branched out beyond single gene disorders to complex acquired disorders. So they were trying to use a genetic strategy for complicated diseases like Parkinson's disease. So I thought that would be a great thing for the field if we could demonstrate the utility of that kind of approach. I had been talking to their CEO, Sheila McHale, for a, a long time, um, it, you know, and I had never had a woman CEO, and I thought that might be an interesting experience, and it has been. It's been great. But, you know, just as I decided to go uh, to come on board, uh, they were acquired by Bayer. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's also been a very interesting experience. So, it's a, you know, it's a it's a. Uh, an old and experienced pharmaceutical company, and sure. they have a lot of ex expertise in the company. So, absolutely. As you know, you, you mentioned the um, sort of the polygenic diseases. Obviously, you have this um, amazing basket of, of what are the six to eight thousand monogenic rare diseases, hundreds of millions of patients, but then. We have this other side where, you know, a lot of the diseases that that uh, kill us, unfortunately, on a daily basis, uh, we can go down that list. But um, in 2013, in Diabetes Journal, you published uh, Treatment of Diabetes and Long-Term Survival After Insulin and Glucokinase Gene Therapy, where you talk about this dual gene therapy, developing this glucose sensor first, I think, published right. in, in uh, rodents, and then you moved to dogs with the, the four years of uh, efficacy and so forth. Um, I'd love to get. I mean, I'd love to hear you talk about that. But at the same time, you know, when it comes to um, all of those diseases that are responsible for the majority of our deaths, um, you know, wh where does you know whether it's two genes, five genes, whatever it may be? I think the term is multiplexing. If I'm not right, where where are we in sort of the evolution of what you've been championing and developing the last couple of decades into some of these uh, chronic degenerative uh, disorders that affect also hundreds of millions of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I I think we're probably early on in that process. And I think that, um, you know, when I think about neurodegenerative disease, uh, first of all, of course, the brain is ex incredibly complex. Sure. There may be some more straightforward ways in. There may be some single gene strategies that have a generally beneficial effect on a wide range of neurodegenerative disorders. And that is the program, our initial program in Huntington's disease. So most Huntington's disease strategies have to do with knocking down the, the abnormal Huntington allele. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they knock down both the normal and the abnormal with the concept that if you get rid of the abnormal, then you don't need all the normal anyway. Uh, but we are using a different strategy where we're using an enzyme involved in cholesterol synthesis. And a lot of people don't know, but your brain is 25% cholesterol. Mm. So, um, so this is a different strategy, but in animal models, at least, it has beneficial effects, not just in Huntington's disease, but in other neurodegenerative conditions like Parkinson's and <laughs> Alzheimer's. So, you know, I think it's a strategy that definitely deserves to be tested. Um, I think that for some of these complex acquired disorders, 
we may very well need more than one gene. Just like when you treat a cancer, it's very rare that we give a single agent. We give multiple agents. And obviously, gene therapy lends itself pretty well to that. Um, Just because you can put more than one gene into a gene delivery vehicle uh, and, you know, take a, a multi-pronged approach. But I do think that the more complicated the disease, the more we're going to have to realize that we're going to have to learn this a step at a time. So, but, you know, it's it's important to get started. Yeah, absolutely. And we all know that there are clearly genetic determinants of successful aging. We know that from studying families who who are distinguished for their longevity. And they have a different uh, genetic makeup compared to people who don't have that situation. And so we know there are genes that affect aging. And there are other companies, you know, who are really exclusively focused on uh, on discovering and then utilizing genes that seem to protect against uh, uh, the degenerative conditions of aging. Sure. So, I mean, I think we're early on in the process, but I I think it's uh, potentially a really exciting area. That that, um, actually leads me into, uh, and you have a lot of cool papers, obviously, but the, the one one of the ones that really stood out to me was this one from 2016 in Nature Biotechnology uh, entitled An Edible Switch for Gene oh. Therapy. Uh, where well, that you, was a commentary on somebody else's paper. But it, 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 just, it, it, it gets, because we, we just did a, you know, an episode a couple of weeks ago on, on sort of epigenetic editing. And, you know, it, it sort of with everything happening uh, in, in all these domains or these related domains, obviously gene therapy, but now here in this paper, you, know, you talk about sort of how uh, transgene regulation can be responsive to the content of the diet. And, and once again, it gets me thinking of, uh, you know, everything we talked about in terms of epigenetics and all these other uh, ways that external influences affect the genome and hence what may be happening per the gene therapy. Can you say a few words about, and, and it could be this, but also other supporting technologies that maybe uh, they're in their infancy, but uh, are, are part of sort of the future of um, of the gene therapy system? Well, you know, people have been interested for quite a long time in a regulatable switch. So this would be a situation where, uh, let's say that you've got a gene therapy vector and we saw the result of it and we decided, well, we actually need twice as much as what the person has right now. Um, it would be a, an oral small molecule drug that you could take. So you take a pill mm-hmm. and it would increase the level of expression because the promoter in front of the gene that we gave you responds to that small molecule drug by ramping up production. So um, we, uh, we have presented some work like that from AskBio already. Um, with a switch that responds to an FDA-approved drug. So you introduce the AV vector into the animal's liver, and then you put them on this drug, and it, it ramps up expression. And so it also allows you to essentially have a situation where you can turn a gene on and off. So then it makes it, it makes it more like uh, you know, like coming in once a month for a monoclonal antibody infusion. Mm-hmm. That you, all you have to do is take an oral drug to turn on your gene. You don't have to go into the, to the treatment center for an infusion. You just take take pills. Yep. So, I mean, you know, these still need to be uh, tested in humans. There's very little experience with any kind of thing like that in in clinical investigation yet. But so that's an example of an adjuvant technology that would extend the reach of gene therapy. For all those that are going to be listening to this particular episode of the show uh, across our podcast uh, networks or watching on the YouTube channel, again, you've been listening to Dr. Catherine High, President Therapeutics, Asclepius Biopharmaceutical, uh, doing amazing things at the forefront of 
of human gene therapy. Uh, Dr. High, it was a, a pleasure seeing you. I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a little while about all these issues. Uh, obviously, thank you for everything you've been doing there at uh, Sclepius, uh, at Spark, at CHOP, of course, over the years. And as we say on our show, uh, thank you so much for helping to create a better tomorrow for so many people out there. It's great seeing you.